Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 56. Really excited for the program today. Um, I am privileged to have a guest whose work I followed for a long, long time, uh, whose work I admire and respect, and um, who I think really fits in nicely with the theme of the show this week, and in fact, the theme of the show for the coming couple of weeks, because before we get to my guest, I want to make it very clear and known to everybody the importance of donating to Counterpunch during this fund drive. The fund drive is uh, uh, going on for a relatively short amount of time. Counterpunch doesn't do it that often, unlike certain other websites, which will go unnamed. Um, And there's no ads, there's no self-promotion other than, you know, just the products that they're putting out there, the books like Rob Urie's Zen Economics and Diana Johnstone's Queen of Chaos and many other other uh, really important works that are being published and put out there by Counterpunch. Uh, and look, the, the the fact of the matter is we have so few spaces left. I mean, even if you look at the so-called alternative media, so much of the alternative media is really co-opted by foundations, by the likes of Soros and the Ford Foundation, the MacArthur uh, ghouls and all of the rest of those people. You know, there we, we really need to focus on protecting the few spaces we have left. And in my opinion, Counterpunch Punch is not only one of those, but it is one that really stands head and shoulders above the rest. It's part of the reason I'm proud to be a part of Counterpunch, to bring this show and to be a contributor to the website and the magazine as well. So think about it. $10, $20, $50, $100, what you can afford, that's what you can give to Counterpunch to help keep it going. I mean, there aren't these huge checks coming in from these billionaires keeping the website going. And I don't know how much you know about websites, but everything is monetized now. You want any little feature, you pay for it. You want a search function, you pay for it. You want to have the the um, the back room, you know, the the analytics and all, all that other stuff that happens on the back end behind the scenes. You pay for that. So how do we keep Counterpunch going? One way is to donate during this fund drive. I urge people to do that. Uh, think about it. What are you spending for Starbucks coffee every morning? What are you spending? on you know your cable TV package? What are you spending on any number of things that you have in your everyday life that cost you money? And then think about just taking a small piece of that and donating to alternative media like Counterpunch. I think that is a great way of being part of the solution. And I think that that's really, really important, particularly in these times that we're living in now. I mean, think about the election. Think about Bernie Sanders. Think about Hillary Clinton. Think about the insanity and sort of uh, uh, psychosis that has taken over the liberal establishment and much of the left. And then look at Counterpunch. And it's really taken a lot of flack for kind of pushing back against all of this, for taking a stand on these issues. I respect it tremendously. I think it's important. And I hope you do as well. And if you've listened to all of this crap that I'm saying, you probably do. So think about donating. Also, uh, keep in mind that the print magazine, a subscription to the print magazine, also a great way to keep Counterpunch going. How many places are still putting out print publications, I would ask you? That is a good question to think about. Counterpunch is excellent. The magazine is excellent. I highly recommend it. Go on the website. Donate today. Anyway, um, 
my audition for the Home Shopping Network over. I would like to turn to my guest this week. I'm very, very happy to be able to introduce Mark Crispin Miller to the program. Uh, Mark is an author, an academic. He may be known to some of you for some of the more important works on recent elections, including Loser Take All, Election Fraud and the Subversion of Democracy, as well as Fooled Again, The Real Case for Electoral Reform. Um, really, I think, critical books to, to, to read to understand what happened during the Bush years and how that's really been pushed forward today. I also want to give a plug to uh, the 40th anniversary edition of Project Censored, which has come out um, in early October. This is a critical book I think everyone needs to get, not only because Mark Crispin Miller wrote the foreword, not only because yours truly was a contributor, but because there is a wealth of information in there a lot of stories that were underreported or completely blacked out of the media that are in that book every single year, and especially this year, the 40th anniversary edition. I'm thrilled to be able to have uh, Mark Crispin Miller on the program. Mark, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Well, thanks for having me on. It's uh, the feeling is mutual, and I, uh, you know, I just put my checkbook away because your pitch for funds for Counterpunch was so compelling. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have to say, I, I find Counterpunch to be a real tonic uh, in times like these, precisely because so much of the left liberal press sounds all too much like the corporate press. So something has gone very wrong with the so-called alternative media. And Counterpunch is a, is a kind of stellar exception, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about it a little bit later, but that's actually what I wrote about in the Project Censored book, the need for an alternative alternative media, because that is something we're coming up against. The fact of the matter is that the, the uh, let's call it the little corner of the internet that we like to refer to as the alternative media is increasingly becoming controlled, increasingly becoming co-opted. And this is true of media in general and of alternative media. And I want to start there if I could, Mark. Your uh, foreword to the Project Censored 40th Anniversary Edition is entitled Our Free Press, quote-unquote, as a clear and present danger. Why we need Project Censored 40 years later. Talk a little bit about that, the notion of a free press as a danger to the establishment, and why you titled the foreword that. Yeah, well, it's a danger, I think, to the survival of democracy and, and even to the survival of the planet, and that I'm sure it may strike some people as, as hyperbolic, but I, I really do believe it, and I hope I made the case in that forward. Um, I, you know, I've been studying the media critically or trying to do so since the late 70s. It's quite some time. And, you know, have a pretty good grasp of the history of the media uh, in the United States. Um, and I, and, I, and I can safely say that I, I've really never seen anything like what uh, the press is, is giving us today. Um, I, 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 I guess the best way to get into this is, is to talk a little bit about uh, some passages from William L. Shirer's Berlin Diary. You know, uh, he was working for CBS in Berlin shortly before World War II. And there's a very poignant passage uh, in the diary where he talks about the kind of disorienting experience of reading all the German papers under Goebbels uh, around the time of the crisis uh, over Poland. All the papers, without exception, 
cast Poland as the aggressor and Germany as the victim. Uh, you know, he quotes a number of, of sensational headlines. He says, you know, it's all lies. Everybody inside Germany has got, you know, a, a completely warped view of the actual situation. And he recalls a similar feeling from a year before over Czechoslovakia, where, where Germany is at risk and Czechoslovakia is committing all these aggressive acts, you know. I, I really cannot say I see any difference whatsoever between the way he felt and the way I feel when I read uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, you name it, across the board, and even certain left liberal outlets now talking about Putin, talking about Russia, Russia's expansionism, resurgent Russia, uh, you know, Russia's penchant for malicious mischief, uh, their tendency, uh, you know, uh, the Kremlin's tendency to murder all of its uh, uh, critics and opponents their weaponization of information. I mean, this stuff, it, it, it's really enough to make your head explode if you know anything about what's actually going on. You know, the situation in Syria right now is, is really critical. Uh, but to, to, and, and it has everything to do with, with you know, uh, aggression against uh, Russia by the United States. But if, if you restrict uh, your media diet to the you know uh, most respected outlets in the United States, you would have no sense whatsoever of what's actually going on, and this is you know I think um, you know not just unfortunate but really really dangerous. You know um, I mean we're talking about um, a revival of hostilities between the United States and a major nuclear power, Russia. Uh, I, I see Democrats acting in, in the kind of recklessly warlike way that we used to associate with people like Curtis LeMay, you know, movies like Dr. Strangelove, and the you know, leading contender for the White House uh, is um, someone who's demonstrated a really ferocious appetite for war, has essentially promised more and bigger wars, even than her predecessor, Barack Obama, which is, which is saying something. And Donald Trump, of course, being cast as the second coming of Der Fuhrer, you know, uh, it, it's it's really um, so. You know, this is just one area in which it seems to me the uh, free press of the United States has failed catastrophically to honor its duty under the First Amendment to uh, help the people keep a check on what the government is doing. Now, despite the fact that our media loves to refer dismissively to the state-owned press in Iran or Cuba or the state-controlled press in Russia, it's really kind of impossible to see any daylight between the mainstream media in this country and the government. Uh, so much reporting is based entirely on the say-so of federal officials, on the say-so of intelligence officials, that uh, you know the, the disappearance of that necessary skepticism is is really alarming, you know, because of the stakes, it seems to me. Absolutely. Now, you, you kind of hit on a number of really important points that I want to flesh out. So I want to begin with uh, the notion of the, the, the corporate media. And um, one thing that I want to say that oftentimes I think is overlooked is I think a little bit of a 
um, misnomer, I guess, although that might not be the right word when it comes to the media, the, the idea that somehow, um, you know, I can't believe it's come to this, all of these, uh, the, these highly respected outlets that for so many years did such good work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in fact, if you look at the history of a lot of these, uh, highly respected quote unquote media outlets, they have been in bed with the state department. They've been in bed with the CIA. They've been in bed with the military industrial complex for many decades, well before the lead up to the Iraq war and the lies that they propagated around that, well before Libya, well before Obama and Bush, uh, you know, for years and years, the Washington Post has been known as the house organ of the CIA. Uh, a couple of couple of uh, episodes back, I had Nick Scow on the program talking about this issue and the history behind the relationship between the CIA and the media outlets that we know, the, the big ones, the highly respected ones. So can we talk a little bit about that? The fact that it's not ever really been a truly free press, but rather one that has been able to masquerade as a free press. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, when I said that I've never seen anything like this, I did not in in any sense mean to suggest that that the problem itself is new. It is not new. In fact, it, it, it goes all the way back. I mean, it goes way back even to before the Cold War's Beginning, it goes back to uh, a moment even prior to the end of World War II, when the Cold War was was incipient. You know, in 1939, uh, George Seldes uh, wrote a devastating critique of how the the newspapers had completely misrepresented the Soviet invasion of Finland, and he couldn't get it published anywhere except finally, I think it was the new masses, so that only communists read it, you know. That's what prompted him to start his own newsletter, in fact. I mean, he couldn't find any newspapers that departed from that script, so it's it's absolutely true that what we're talking about has been a problem for a long time. And I think it's always useful to uh, hark back to the the media's disgraceful response to uh, the assassination of John Kennedy, and their unanimous support for the Warren Commission report, which continues to this day, you know. I mean, to read the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Daily Beast or any of them, or the New Yorker for that matter, on the Kennedy assassination is is to feel as if you've slipped into a time warp. You know, it might as well be 1967. It's really, it's staggering, and and that speaks to what you've referred to and, and, you know, Nick's important work. Uh, that the CIA has has had a grip on the press in this country for quite a long time, which is something that you know Carl Bernstein uh, partly uh, revealed in uh, Rolling Stone in 1977, you know a famous cover story that was actually uh, kind of whited out at the time it appeared. Famously leaving out famously leaving out the Washington Post as one of well, the he, things. Right, he left out the Washington Post. He <laughs> also implied that um, the function of those uh, CIA hirelings and friends in the press was primarily espionage. Uh, there's only one little footnote that obliquely suggests that their function may have been uh, to do propaganda. Uh, he also suggested that the problem was over, that it is something that had happened. And finally, he actually radically understated the number of, of you know, compromised journalists. And this has to do with the fact that his sources were mostly in the CIA, and I think it was some kind of a limited hangout, if you see what I mean. Nevertheless, 
the subject did come up in in the uh, mid 70s. His piece in Rolling Stone in 77 was actually more or less the culmination of three or four years when the subject had been surfacing here and there, you know, the Columbia Journalism Review and other places. And this actually speaks to um, what I believe is something that's fairly recent. Uh, in other words, the problem we're discussing, as you note quite acutely, is by no means new. What's happened is that the, the exceptions are fewer and the opposition such as it used to be, is much smaller. Yes. The alternative press has shrunk dramatically. And, and I want to suggest that if this is something I want to do someday, a kind of a comparative research project, is to look at what outlets like The Nation and the New York Review of Books and The New Yorker, uh, and even uh, the New York Times Book Review, you know, uh, what... There, there is a striking difference, I believe, between what they used to publish, the subjects they used to address, and what they publish now and what they address now. You know, uh, the, 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 the CIA's dirty doings abroad, for example, is a subject that those outlets used to cover fairly regularly. And books that dealt with that kind of thing got reviewed. I mean, it's amazing to recall the fact that Philip Agee's classic uh, Inside the Company, you know, the CIA diary that he came out with in 75, was actually reviewed positively in the Times and the Washington Post. And the Washington Post review uh, actually included a footnote that told people how to get hold of copies from Britain. This is before it was published in the United States. This is especially remarkable since, as you note, you know, the Washington Post and Catherine Graham were uh, sort of CIA subsidiaries, you know, so was Ben Bradley. But, you know, again, you know, I think back then it was likelier that, that parts of the Washington Post would not be on board. In other words, uh, just as in those days, you know, you had more of an alternative press or at least more of a press that wasn't part of the agency's agenda. So was it the case that, that more reporters, even at compromised newspapers, more departments, even at compromised newspapers, would be relatively independent, you see. That's all changed. I think there's been, I mean, you know, the, the, the Germans had a word for it, uh, Gleichschaltung, streamlining. I mean, I know this is a kind of a, an explosive analogy, but I, I think it's one that I'm prepared to defend you know, when the Nazis took over, they they um, made sure that uh, the various you know key institutions in German society, like the press, for example, underwent a Gleichschaltung, that is streamlining. You know, they got rid of people who weren't on board. They purged these professions. They purged academia. They streamlined them all so that they were perfectly in line, you know, with with the intentions of of the Reich of the of the Nazi state. Something kind of like that has happened here, it seems to me, so that you, 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 we, we end up uh, seeing outlets like The Intercept, for example, running a glowing piece about the white helmets in Syria. Now, now I think very highly of Glenn Greenwald and, and much of what The Intercept does. I think it's important that it's there. But the fact that they would run a piece like that uh, strikes me as very troubling. The fact that democracy now will 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 feature you know spokespersons for the Venezuelan right, or Ukrainians who defend the uh, the you know um, 
the recent government, you know, as if as if the people they have on are not, you know, suspicious characters, if you see what I mean. So, I, I you know, uh, just one more example. There is no question but that Bernie Sanders nomination was stolen, uh, whether by the DNC or by the Republicans who did not want to run against Bernie or by both. We don't know who did it. But the evidence of widespread vote suppression and electronic fraud is overwhelming. Uh, much of it is in this great study, Democracy Lost from Election Justice USA, which I, I recommend very highly. Well, despite you know all that evidence, which is, which is copious and specific, Josh Marshall in The Nation refers to the conspiracy theory that there was election fraud whereby Hillary Clinton was imposed on us over Bernie Sanders. Conspiracy theory. That's in the nation, you know. Um, that's, there's just something very, very suspicious about that to me. And it suggests that, um, you know, after that brief uh, and, and more or less glorious moment in the mid-'70s when um, there was a, a certain amount of, uh, of, of questioning all of a sudden because of Watergate, because of Vietnam, because of the congressional investigations of the CIA. Things were sort of starting to open up a little bit. People were beginning to understand that the fairy tale version of American history and American power was, was just false, you know. I think that um, there was a kind of counter movement, a deliberate attempt by the government to work covertly to end that moment and make sure that nothing like it ever happened again. And I think that we're living with the consequences now. Absolutely. You know, the thing, the thing is too, that, um, as I have said many times before, I'm not sure if I've ever said it on this show, but, um, the ruling class is ruling for a reason. You know what I mean? These people aren't dumb. They know what's happening. They know how to change their tactics. They know, or at least they knew 40 plus years ago that the situation had changed, that the way that they had been doing things, say from 1950 through 1975, that that wasn't going to fly anymore. They didn't need to plant their spies in the media establishment, in the media organizations. They didn't need to, uh, you know, overtly try to control control and influence all of the uh, the reporting. Rather, they needed to just form these relationships based on access, based on, uh, you know, access to elite circles, access to intelligence in order to shape the narratives, in order to influence the kind of reporting that was put out there. And I think that this was something that was known to a lot of people, but I think for people, particularly younger people of my generation who really came of age um, around uh, 9-11, and the Iraq war, I think the lead up to that war is probably the biggest eye opener, the, the, the probably the most glaring example of just how much the corporate media is an appendage of the military industrial complex and the ruling class. And so what I want to get to, um, and this is sort of a roundabout way of getting to this question is alluding back to a comment you made earlier about quote unquote state owned media, whether it's Russian media, Iranian media, Chinese, or what have you. 
I would I would argue that in fact we have state-owned media in this country too. The problem is it's a different kind of state-owned media because our state, quote unquote, is merely an expression of a corporate ruling class, a corporate oligarchy, and those corporations that control our media are the same corporations that control our government. And so the 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 notion that we're somehow superior to the Russians or to the Chinese or to whomever because of the kind of media we have, I think is not only ludicrous, it's actually an inversion of reality. Well, it is. And, 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 and it's extremely important to note how, how dangerous it is for people to continue to believe, and, and this includes people in the media as well, that um, somehow, because we're not like Cuba or Russia or China, uh, we we therefore have a free press, you know. I mean, people in China, those whom I, I I've known, and 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 uh, you know, democracy activists in in Russia and other places, have no illusions about the nature of 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 most of the press or all of the press there. You know, I That's mean, right. there, the, the 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 hand of the state is 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 apparent, and 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 those regimes don't posture as guardians of democracy, right? Whereas, whereas here, the 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 kind of um, state-owned or state-controlled or corporate-controlled system that you're talking about is 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 shielded from a kind of critical view by this whole ideology of pluralism and independence and and uh, free expression and so on. Um, which is completely unearned, you know. I mean, they betray it every single day, but it's it's um, important for people to see through that, you know, and it's often easier said than done. Although I have to say, you know, as someone who's been teaching for, for many years, I find that my, my students um, are, are really quite ready to um, recognize the truth, I mean, even the ones who aren't at all political, which is most of them, they um, are not intimidated by the conspiracy theory meme. Uh, they're, they're, they never get defensive or uptight or act disoriented or threatened when, when they hear a kind of discussion like the, ones, like the one we're having now. And I think it has everything to do with the Internet. Uh, the fact that the other side of the story is instantaneously available. Uh, all you have to do is you know, put in a few search terms and you can you can quickly find out that the, the, the narrative you're getting from the New York Times and CNN is uh, either you know, half true or completely false. And I think that's, that's actually a great thing and a relief, you know. Yeah, although I will say that we have to also be very uh, careful about the, you know, the advent of the internet as far as, you know, creating counter narratives, because in my opinion, that is fertile ground for infiltration by the, uh, by the intelligence community, by others and, you know, online spooks and trolls and, and so oh, forth, yeah. where they plant fake stories, they plant fake theories, they infiltrate the, the message boards, the chat rooms and, you know, the, the social oh, media no circles and all of the rest of that. And so the terrain that we have to navigate as far as finding the nuggets of truth amid a sea of lies is become even more complex and even more difficult. Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, I, 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 I battle with trolls on a daily basis, you know, Me too. Uh, I'm sure you do. I have no doubt about it. And, and that is also the fact 
which which is becoming increasingly worrisome, especially very recently. Um, the fact of uh, you know uh, inconvenient posts and communications being blocked by Google and and Facebook. You know, I mean, um, you're not going to get this from the New York Times, but. Uh, you know, Google CEO has met with uh, people in the Obama White House, I don't know, scores of times. And, uh, I, I, you know, one of my Facebook friends is Judith Very Baker, you know, who was Lee Harvey Oswald's girlfriend. And she finds that a lot of the stuff she posts uh, gets blocked. And um, I myself tried to post uh, links to some of the articles about the dangers of the first draft coalition, you know, which is this uh, arrangement between Facebook and Google and other major players to help journalists tell truth from lie online. You know, it's one of these Snopes type pseudo skeptical operations. Well, I couldn't, I went on Google to find these links to articles that I, I know are out there. I've read them and not a single one of them came up, you know, now, this shouldn't come as a surprise. I mean, Google is not a publicly funded resource, right? It's a private corporation and everything. Nevertheless, you know, I think at first they might have been careful not to be so ham-fisted about it. But, you know, as as we're moving into a very dangerous moment now, uh, you know, where the U.S. government's involvement with Islamic terrorism is becoming, in, in, you know, ever better known to more and more people, where the two... Uh, you know, political parties have clearly lost their luster where, uh, you know, a, a, a socialist, a, a self-described socialist was actually far and away the most popular candidate of all of them. You know, at a moment like this, I, I believe, uh, you know, the the um, powers that be are becoming, um, you know, more uh, overt in their um, repression, you know. I find that the uh, discourse of conspiracy theory is becoming more strident and insistent, you know. Uh, we could talk about that a little bit if you want, the notion of conspiracy theory. Is that, is that something? Yeah, that's... absolutely. You know, one of the things that one of the things that I always uh, come up against is this uh, this slur that any time that you challenge the dominant narrative, but in a way that is, let's say, not palatable for the liberal mind, you're immediately labeled a conspiracy theorist. I give you an example, and you know it's controversial within the left and whatever, but I don't particularly care about that. When the when the war in Syria first began uh, in 2011, and I was I was just starting my first podcast at the time. I hadn't really been writing articles yet, but I was doing podcasts like every week, and I was covering it and I was talking about all these different aspects of the story that were being totally ignored by the corporate media and I would get barraged with emails from liberals who would tell me that I I was a quote-unquote Assad conspiracy theorist. It was a conspiracy theory that the United States through the CIA was arming terrorist proxies inside of that country. That was a conspiracy theory and then seven months later the New York Times published a story 
story, June, I remember it perfectly, I've, I've cited it a thousand times, June 2012, headline, CIA said to steer arms to Syrian rebels. And all of a sudden, my so-called conspiracy theory from eight months previous was immediately vindicated. And all of a sudden, right. I'm no longer a conspiracy theorist. And this happens time and time and time again. And so no, the kidding. important thing, uh, I think, for us is to separate when conspiracy theory is used as a slur to to you know create irrelevance versus conspiracy theory quote unquote meaning the world online that the Alex Joneses and the David Ikes and the rest of them have sort of created for themselves that echo chamber of far right wing silliness and I think well, right, the, right. The, the the blurring of the line between those two is part and parcel of the attack on alternative media. Absolutely. Well, let me let this is a very gratifying moment for me to be able to talk about this. I mean, my own career was was um, uh, seriously uh, uh, sidetracked, let's say, uh, by my publication of um, Fooled Again, you know, uh, before that book came out in 2005. And that's that's about the theft of the 2004 election. I was, you know, a frequent guest on all the major NPR shows and so on. I was always asked to come on and talk about uh, so-called pop culture and stuff like that. And uh, I'd written, you know, a couple of books attacking the Bush administration, the Bush dyslexicon and Cruel and Unusual. And, and that was okay, you know, because it appealed to liberals. Both of those did. But when this book about the theft of the 2004 election came out, uh, a book that I thought would, you know, make a tremendous difference. Cause it's very carefully researched and everything is sourced. And I thought it would, you know, stimulate a, a, a long overdue and, and necessary public discussion of the need for a reformed voting system. It was completely blacked out by the mainstream media and attacked uh, in the left press. And there I was called a conspiracy theorist. Uh, that slur, uh, you know, back in 2005 and going forward was one that really, you know, made, made a tremendous difference uh, to me professionally and, you know, kind of as a public figure. Uh, and I, that prompted me to start to study the, the provenance of that meme. You know, where did it come from? And I found that, you know, it, it, it was almost never used by the Times or the Washington Post or Time Magazine uh, prior to 1967. Yep. Up until then, you know, it was used now and then, and it was not used in any consistent way. From 1967 on, it was always used in the same way. It was always used, you know, as you note, to ridicule and to marginalize anyone who suggested any kind of a state crime uh, like the Kennedy assassination. Well, you know, it was because of my discovery of this uh, that I urged Lance DeHaven Smith, who was also doing research into this question on his own, to write a book about it uh, for a series I was editing for the University of Texas Press called Discovering America. And he did. He wrote a terrific book called Conspiracy Theory in America, which... Um, I strongly recommend to anyone because it's all about the CIA's uh, inarguable uh, propaganda drive. Uh, the memo kicking it off is an appendix in Lance's book. In the spring of 1967, they sent this memo to all station chiefs worldwide 
urging them to use their propaganda assets and friends in the media to discredit the work of, um, this would be Mark Lane and Edward J. Epstein and Sylvia Meager, people who'd been writing books questioning the Warren Commission report. This was a deliberate propaganda drive uh, and a brilliant one that urged, you know, um, the um, stigmatization of these dissident voices and even went so far as to recommend about five different arguments to be used to make the case that these writers were either cynical or, or deluded. And the same arguments pop up time and time and time again, even today. At the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, they all weighed in. Adam Gopnik of The New Yorker, I mean, he's a terrific writer. He wrote a disgraceful piece for The New Yorker, uh, you know, ridiculing the conspiracy theorists uh, who are, uh, you know, obsessed with the Kennedy assassination and are so demented as to suggest there was a conspiracy in that crime. And the arguments he uses come directly out of that memo. I don't know if he actually read the memo or anything, but somehow through some kind of osmotic process, yeah, they been, found their way into his mind. You it's, know? Been and it's, just, it's been it's internalized. It's been completely Exactly. It's been completely internalized. And it's one that, that you, know, you run into time and time and time again to the point that I now believe that anyone who uses that phrase in a pejorative sense is a witting or unwitting CIA asset. I, I really believe that, you know. It's been used to, you know, uh, poo-poo people who raise questions about those uh, momentous assassinations in the 60s, not just Jack's, but Bobby's and, and Martin King's, to poo-poo any discussion of Iran-Contra, uh, certainly 9-11, certainly election fraud. Gary Webb, of course, was destroyed as a conspiracy theorist by, yeah. you know, by his brethren in the uh, mainstream media. And uh, I just want to tell you about an experience that I've had since last spring when I um, was struck by, you know, the story of Robert De Niro uh, deciding to screen that documentary, Vaxxed, at the Tribeca Film Festival. This would be in April. And, you know, immediately the entire press, I mean, everybody, Variety and yep. Vanity Fair and, you know, everybody and his brother was jumping all over him. People, uh, you know, describing the film as, as completely, you know, tawdry and mendacious and the man behind it as a, as a fraudulent quack and so on, so that De Niro pulled the film. Well, I got hold of the film and I, I actually got to uh, talk to both the producer and the director, you know, Andrew Wakefield, the much abused British doctor who made the documentary. The documentary is superb. Every single article about it is completely false. Um, and we're talking here about a threat to public health, uh, a movie that's been completely misdescribed as an anti-vaccine film. It is not. It is a film about uh, a conspiracy by the CDC to suppress evidence, to suppress its own findings that the MMR vaccine, just that one vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, actually does increase the risk of autism in children under three, especially African-American boys. The source for this is a CDC scientist named William Thompson, who was the lead author of the very study that the CDC falsified and whose anguished audio confessions are the spine of the film. There is, 
you know, Eric, there is no arguing with this. It is a fact. It, it is the result of, of confessions by somebody inside the CDC uh, admitting that that particular vaccine has had a disastrous effect on the public health. Uh, you know, the CDC's decision to suppress those findings strikes me as a crime against humanity. Well, all of this has been dismissed as conspiracy theory yep. by the press, you know, stridently and unanimously attacking both the film and the filmmaker. And to this day, many liberals on Facebook will will attack me simply for sending out anything that raises questions about vaccines, you know. But here again, you know, we're talking about a, a, a profound reluctance to face the fact that uh, the state does not have our best interests at heart and is capable of acting in a most destructive way in collusion with corporate interests. This is what's happened in that case, and it happens all the time. And the conspiracy theory meme is a device to intimidate people out of trusting their best instincts. Well, and also, it, also, it's the the um, much maligned, you know, uh, metaphor, or I guess, or image of you know the 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 men meeting in a dark and smoke filled room, and that somehow right. that is just outlandish and it couldn't possibly happen. Well, you know, the reality is that they meet mostly in non smoking rooms, in in board in boardrooms, and in fancy hotels and at resorts where they do uh, conspire by definition to follow particular agenda to take a particular course of action. It is in the nature of the ruling class. It is in the nature of how the system continues to operate, how the empire continues to function and the very idea that somehow they don't do that I think in in, in my view is incredibly uh, um, well, let me put it this way Anybody who doesn't believe that the ruling class meets and conspires to follow a particular agenda is discredited, in my well, view. Absolutely. And let, let me that, that reminds me of a very important point that Lance DeHaven Smith makes in his book, which is that this, this propaganda drive um, w was successful not only in, in, you know, say, shielding the Warren Commission from, from a kind of criticism and so on. It had a far more profound and damaging effect which was to, was to in, a, in a sense, change the way Americans uh, think about, about the powerful, change the way Americans think about the elites. He makes the argument that until this, you know, um, incapacitating meme took hold and until, uh, you know, uh, before people internalized it, as you say, Americans really had no trouble with the idea that elites might conspire against their rights and property and, and freedom. I mean, the, he notes that the Declaration of Independence is a conspiracy theory from beginning to end. You know, the, under entire, the, the entire populist movement was rooted in that notion exactly. that bankers on Wall Street conspired against the farmers and the poor uh, exactly. in, in the West. I mean, you could point to any number of movements in the history of this country that are really rooted in that very notion. Exactly, and and of course the you know Charles and Mary Beard their their book on on you know the the uh, uh, Constitution, how the framers were very concerned to protect their own interests. I mean this this guy wasn't laughed uh, off stage when that book came out. I guess it was in 1913 or thereabouts. 
I mean, this book was very successful, very influential. People read it. It had a tremendous influence on a whole generation of historians. And then, you know, things began to shift, and Lance goes into the intellectual history behind this propaganda drive, you know, and, and uh, Richard Hofstadter, you know, his essay on, on um, anti-intellectualism and so on, and, and the conspiracy theory of the McCarthyites, uh, all of this uh, uh, has, has now made people feel as if the very healthy suspicion that the elites are up to no good and capable of conspiracy is something they have to apologize for. I mean, how often have you heard people say, well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, then they'll make some perfectly reasonable statement, you know, whether it's about 9-11 or TWA Flight 800, I mean, you name it. I mean, you, you only have to study some of these things for about a half an hour before you realize that the official story is malarkey, is preposterous. But somehow, because people have internalized this, this notion, um, this meme, uh, you know, a very kind of healthy, all-American presumption of, of, of guilt at the top has, has – um, you know, it's it's kind of disappeared or it's gone into remission. No doubt. I, I don't exactly know what metaphor to use, but we got to get over it. And I think people are getting over it now. You know, I think people are waking up, which then raises the question of what might come down the pike next, you know, to distract everybody. And I don't, I don't know if I want to get into that because it's too scary. <laughs> but the fact is, I think people are, are, you know, snapping out of it. Well, we're we're way overdue for a break, but I have to make one last point because all of all of that being said, and I agree with all of it, it's also important for those of us, particularly on the left, particularly who take a, a skeptical view of uh, what the media says, a skeptical view of what the elites are doing, a skeptical view of what the empire is up to. We also have a responsibility to separate. Uh, a healthy skepticism from the kind of blind acceptance of overarching grand conspiracies, which I think is not only unhealthy, but I think it's actually uh, cancer to the movement for truth and justice and all of that. So you have in the co- in the darker corners of the internet of the alt right and all of the rest of that. You have you know the Rothschild Jew conspiracy to control the world, the lizard reptilian conspiracy, the Illuminati, the free. Freemasons and every group that you could possibly imagine all put together into one grand conspiracy. And of course, Alex Jones is a prominent exponent or David Icke or whomever. And a lot of that then gets sort of blended together with the kind of questioning that you're talking about, the kind of questioning that would lead people in 1953 to say, hmm, you know, I think the CIA overthrew the Iranian government. Oh, 50 years later, we find out Yep, confirmed. Oh, I think that the bankers in London might be conspiring to fix prices and to rig markets. Boom, LIBOR confirmed the conspiracy. We could point to a hundred examples of what used to be a conspiracy, now confirmed fact, and never an apology from those people who want to beat us over the head with the conspiracy theory, crazy, you know, crazy club or whatever you want to call well, it. No, I, 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 I want to address that. What, you want, should we take a break and then we'll... 
pick up with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's take let's take a break because we're way overdue for that. I'm chatting with Mark Crispin Miller uh, again. Go to markcrispinmiller.com to find all of his work. Pick up a copy of the 40th anniversary edition of the Project Censored uh, book. We will be right back. here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Mark Crispin Miller. Again, Counterpunch Fund Drive, very important. Uh, get your donation into Counterpunch today. Keep Counterpunch going. The kind of conversation I'm having here this evening is the kind of conversations that need to be had on the left, that need to be had within the alternative media space, even if you don't agree with everything Mark is saying or I'm saying or er- uh, everything you see on Counterpunch. That's part of the point. That's the kind of space that we're supposed to have. That's the kind of free speech and 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 questioning and and discourse that is so sorely lacking from I would say ninety nine point nine percent of the media uh, um, landscape. So do consider being being a uh, donor to Counterpunch and helping to keep the project going. Anyway, uh, Mark, you wanted to make a point before we went to break about uh, the, the what I was saying in regards to the separation of the skeptical quote unquote conspiracy theorizing versus the grand overarching narrative of the grand conspiracy and of course its roots uh, historically so go right ahead yeah i, I think that it, it is crucial always to be very careful to make that distinction you've got on the one hand um you know specific episodes each of which we need to study in detail 
carefully, you know, according to the most rigorous scholarly or journalistic standards, on the assumption that that these are real world actors, you know, trying to um, pursue their own interests, which vary, you know, from party to party. On the other hand, you have a kind of um, nightmare vision of an eternal conspiracy involving the same superhuman, uh, you know, hyper monstrous actors. And this, of course, recalls, uh, you know, things like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, before th- that kind of um, anti-Semitic vision took hold in the 19th century, uh, in, in the United States, the more uh, popular of such uh, sort of grand conspiracy theories involved the Vatican and the Church. But um, I, I also want to make the point that not only is it important for us to make this kind of a distinction you know, between between a kind of rational study of certain conspiracies and this, uh, um, you know, grand uh, uh, sort of world historical vision of a single conspiracy. I think it's also important to, to see how the corporate press and, and the left press as well uh, continue to confuse the two on purpose. Yep. Uh, to 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 sort of you know blend to mix together perfectly reasonable so-called conspiracy theories with with those that sound insane. I mean, and 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 Donald Trump, it seems to me, has wittingly or unwittingly, probably unwittingly, really served that purpose admirably. You know, because first of all, if he says something, it then becomes by definition, you know, a priori wrong and insane. And even when he says things that happen to be correct, if it comes out of his mouth, it is immediately discredited as a so-called conspiracy theory. There was a piece in the Daily Beast about three weeks ago saying, if you like Donald Trump, you'll love the Illuminati, something like that. <laughs> and the piece was illustrated, uh, you know, it was a photograph of a very goofy looking woman with big heavy glasses and a big tin foil hat shaped like a pyramid, you know. I mean, you could see where this was going. Yeah. Well, the amazing thing is that, that you know, it, the piece included among the crackpot views that we all know enough to laugh off, uh, the notion that, that Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states have donated a lot of money to the Clinton Foundation. Well, that happens to be true, <laughs> you know. I mean, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal had reported that. You know, that's not a controversial claim. But as evidence, the author of that ludicrous article refers to a moment when Brian Stelter of CNN was interviewing someone who made that charge. And Stelter says, well, that comes from a pretty sketchy website, see? So all of a sudden, that, you know, that fact is consigned to the realm of, of you know, the alt-right, of the nuts, of the conspiracy theorists. And this kind of thing happens all the time. And I actually believe that some of the you know, anti-Semitic uh, participants, in, or they seem to be participants in the 9-11 truth movement, you know, may be on the job, if you see what I mean. I mean, they may be uh, taking that position vis-a-vis 9-11 as a way to, tar, to tarnish the entire inquiry, you know. Uh, you know, I, it wouldn't really surprise me in the least uh, if if the state used trolls of that kind, since we know that they've used trolls generally to, you know, discredit and divide various movements. 
So I think it's not only important for us to make the distinction between the, the crackpot theorizing and, and the legitimate kind of inquiry, but I think we also have to be aware that, that, that often the crazy stuff is used to you know, discourage us from thinking critically about a whole range of things, if you see what I mean. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, um, just to kind of build off of your point, you know, I wrote a piece uh, in Counterpunch now, I guess, like more than a year and a half ago. Let me see. February 2015. Um, the the title of my piece was um, ISIS, a pretext for cyber cointel pro. And what the piece was really about, and, and this is the reason I bring it up, I think it's germane to this conversation. It was about the establishment of this thing called the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communication. This is basically under the Pentagon, Homeland Security, the CIA, all of these agencies kind of coming together in this brain trust of more or less an army of online trolls, ostensibly to push back against uh, Islamic extremist propaganda online, particularly of the of, of the ISIS variety. But you know, I couldn't help when I read it in the New York Times, when I read about that, I couldn't help but thinking back to all of the stuff I've read, whether Ward Churchill or from the Church Committee or the Pike Committee or what have you, about COINTELPRO, about how that functioned, about what it was to uh, infiltrate and divide radical left groups, whether the Black Panthers or any number of other groups back in the 1960s and early 1970s, and the very idea that that kind of infiltration, that that kind of uh, of deliberate sort of uh, dissemination of uh, disinformation, that that's not happening today, is it is absolutely insane to not understand that not only is it happening, but it's happening in an even more sophisticated way. Now, we have documented evidence now that Israel has armies of trolls online under hundreds of aliases uh, disseminating uh, pro-Israeli, pro-Zionist propaganda all over the internet, pushing back against anybody who challenges the uh, uh, Israeli state and, and so forth. You see this time and time again. So why why is it so hard to believe that we have a controlled media landscape, a controlled media system, including online, and those of us who are pushing back against it, we're constantly coming up against this? Oh, that's absolutely true. You know, it's interesting, uh, this, this, you know, the turn this discussion has taken, I guess, uh, prompts me to, to note that, that I, I think a lot of liberals, and especially G Jews, uh, Jewish liberals are are especially uneasy about you know 9/11 truth, for example, precisely because there is that long disreputable strain of 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 conspiracy theorizing that we were talking about a moment ago. You know, the idea that the Jews are behind the whole thing. Uh, you know, uh, this is you know uh, something that we have to you know fight all the time in, in trying to get liberals to focus on uh, some of these really significant con conspiracies. Conspiracy, you know, the charge of conspiracy theory, I think, gets gets those people's hackles can up, I, especially can, so. Can I just interject really quickly? A thought just came to my mind as you were saying that. Um, here's a question. Why is it that when, when the liberal uh, media 
the corporate media comes along with its conspiracy theories, we're not allowed to discredit it and dismiss it as conspiracy theory. For instance, the notion that WikiLeaks and Julian Assange are just a front organization for the Kremlin, that to me, that's a clear and obvious and baseless and unfounded conspiracy theory that should be utterly discredited and consigned to the dustbin. And yet we see it in the corporate media day after day after day with no real evidence evidence, merely just the the musings of, you know, unnamed State Department officials and unnamed White House officials and what have you, and yet we have to talk about it. That's what controlling discourse and controlling narrative is about. It's not only about the creation of facts and the creation of history, it's about the control over discussion, control over discourse, control over interchange and exchange of information. That's absolutely true. Well, let, let's not forget, you know, that Americans were for decades, um, you know, steeped in in the grand conspiracy theory of the international communist plot to take over the world. You know, I mean, that was never uh, uh, based on reality. Stalin had no interest in taking over the world. His aggression, uh, you know, uh, around the borders of the Soviet Union was uh, defensive. Uh, he he was extremely uh, cautious, just as you know, to jump across the ocean. Uh, Castro always was not to give the United States the pretext to invade. Putin now is extremely cautious. I, you know, this is going to sound completely demented to most Americans who get their news from the New York Times, but there is no adventurism there. There is only prudence and, and cautiousness and so on. But as you say, you know, uh, the conspiracy theory that like uh, Trump is a Russian agent and so on, or that Assange is working for Putin, or that the Russians are trying to manipulate the American election, or that they hacked the DNC. I mean, these claims are taken as as gospel truth, although there is no shred, it's not a shred of evidence to back any of them up. And the thing well, is, to, and the thing is, Mark, it's possible. It's entirely possible, but we don't have any evidence to say that it's true. But it's well, accepted right. as true. That's the issue. I'm perfectly willing to believe if somebody provides me with the evidence that the Russians are involved in all sorts of nefarious activities. Why wouldn't they be? They have a robust intelligence apparatus. They have a major state military system. There, They are well-trained for decades going back to the Cold War, so it's entirely within the realm of possibility. But the fact that there's no evidence, and yet we're forced to believe it, and matter of fact, not only are we forced to believe it, we're ridiculed if you don't believe it, if you question it, that should strike people as a bit odd. Well, the point is that, that precisely because I think of our long immersion in, in this fantasy of uh, you know, a, a, a red conspiracy, a, a, a red global conspiracy with, you know, China and the Soviet Union only pretending to fall out with each other to lull us into a false sense of security. I mean, these kinds of crackpot notions were all accepted as, as gospel truth, pumped out through the American press. And for decades, as I say, you know, people came to internalize this this notion. I think that has that kind of laid the groundwork for the kind of credulousness we're talking about now. And the point you're making, if I can just sort of, you know, restate it, is that, you know, the, 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 the evidentiary standard is extremely high 
for those of us who, who, who argue for certain crimes against democracy committed by the American state, but the, the, the evidentiary standard is extremely low for any claim that one might want to make about Putin or about Iran, you know, or about Venezuela. You can say whatever there, the hell you, you can, want. Yeah, you can say whatever the hell you want. You know, uh, speaking of something you mentioned a moment ago, um, how, how one is ridiculed for not believing the, these, these uh, you know, assertions. When Trump said at his debate with Hillary that, you know, he keeps, he, you keep saying Russia, Russia, Russia. This is after she had asserted that Russia had hacked the DNC. He said, we actually don't have any evidence that they did. Well, that, that's, you know, one of the rare moments when he said something that was completely true. Yeah. Well, I, I, Thomas Friedman of the New York Times just went bananas over this, he wrote a whole column about it, uh, you know, about Trump's uh, insane conspiracy theories and wild claims and so on. And he took particular aim at that moment. And he said that he said that without doubt, and it was italicized, without doubt, the Russians uh, hacked the DNC. Jesus. And he said, any U.S. intelligence agent will tell you this. I mean, <laughs> he said this without, without any irony or, yeah. or I mean, I, I've heard that Friedman actually interned at the CIA. I, I, I don't remember if it was him or David Brooks or Marcos Melitzis or yeah, Anderson Cooper same. or they're all, all the of them, same. right? Yeah. I think they all did. But I mean, the fact that he could say that uh, you know, in our newspaper of record is, is, is not just not just ludicrous, but really kind of frightening. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, well, we're definitely over time already, but I can't end this conversation without shifting to the really important subject that you're really one of the experts on, if I, if I could be so bold. Um, and that has to do with another one of our grand conspiracies here in this country, the so-called democracy and uh, the so-called elections that we have. And the reason I say so-called is not because I think that, you know, it's a circus, of course it is, uh, or because, you know, the ruling class controls both parties and, and uh, that they're not particularly concerned about the election results and all of that is true. But what I want to get to is the quote-unquote conspiracy theory, which in my view is merely uh, stating the facts, that in fact our electoral system itself, the so-called democracy that we have, is a complete delusion and there is copious evidence and copious documented uh, uh, facts and research to show everything from the electronic voting machines are easily manipulated and hacked to voter suppression to the purging of voter rolls to, uh, I mean, we could point to many other examples including, you know, uh, studies from those wild conspiracy theorists at the Brennan Center for Justice to those uh, insane lunatics uh, uh, Harvey Wasserman and Bob Fetrakis, who are, uh, I think, renowned on this subject, to right. uh, you know that that den of lunatics at Stanford University. You know all of these right. places that have you know that that. Um, oh, excuse me. Also, the Center for Information Technology Policy at Princeton University, and we could go right. on and on and on. All of these institutions having shown clearly and conclusively that there is absolutely no reason to trust any results of any election in the United States, and yet we're supposed to be crapping our pants over the Russians hacking. 
Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. I mean, there's no need to fear the Russians hacking our elections because, you know, uh, we can do that ourselves. We do it, exactly. And we, we do it all the time. And, and you know, this, this, uh, this, this cancer on democracy, if I may call it that, it has, has been um, progressing for decades. I mean, for, since even before the election of 2000, which was the event that, that led to the uh, de facto computerization of the American voting system. There's a great book that had to be self-published called Vote Scam uh, by James and Kenneth Collier, a couple of brothers who, who had started to study some election results in Florida back in the 70s. And they discovered uh, you know, uh, that um, the press absolutely refused to go anywhere near the precise and overwhelming evidence that, that these elections had been fixed. Uh, let me just say very quickly that that book is one of many that we've republished in a series called The Forbidden Bookshelf, whose purpose is to revive important works now out of print, mostly books that were killed at birth. Uh, it's an ebook series, but we brought Vote Scam back because it was extremely difficult to find. At any rate, um, it is a fact. It is a fact. It is a fact that we have by far the most insecure uh, the worst voting system in the developed world. In, in 2006, Jimmy Carter was interviewed on NPR, and he was asked whether or not the Carter Center would ever monitor an American election. And he said that they would not, because American elections don't rise to the level where they would even bother to look into them. That's how bad it is. So it isn't just the dark money, you know, it isn't just Citizens United. I mean, a lot of liberals will talk about that. Yep. And it isn't, it isn't only just the voter ID laws and the various vote suppression, the kind of neo-Jim Crow tactics that the Republican Party has used for so long and that the Democrats were using against Bernie Sanders this year. Which, and, and I just want to add, which is absolutely critical to pay attention to, not something that we're attempting to marginalize at all, a very important issue, but not the only issue. Sorry, go no, ahead. Not, not, well, right. I mean, you know, it, it is permissible. Uh, I mean, the nation and others will talk about vote suppression, but what, sure. what many of them won't talk about, what the Brennan Center won't talk about, for example, is uh, the, um, the likelihood of deliberate, computerized election fraud, the, yeah. the deliberate theft of elections through electronic means. This, this is a fact. This is something that, you know, Bob Petrakis and Harvey Wasserman talk about brilliantly, as you note, and others have, Bev Harris and, and, and many others. That's the taboo subject. That's the third rail in this area of election theft. The theft of our elections is a two-step process. The first step is to suppress the vote and thereby shrink the pool of eligible voters so that fewer people can, can vote. But the crucial second step, and the one that's dismissed as conspiracy theory, is the more precise and subtler uh, fiddling with the numbers in precinct after precinct to take away 150 votes here and to add 75 votes there. That's, that's finally how the election of 2004 was stolen. And that is clearly how a number of primaries were stolen in this last election season. And then I have no idea what – yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I just wanted to add, you know, and then you have to consider who's making 
these machines? Who's counting the votes? I don't mean the people who are sitting at, you know, your local election headquarters or whatever. I'm talking about the people who are actually developing and safeguarding the infrastructure of our voting. You look at companies like ES&S, which is owned partially by Warren Buffett. You look at Diebold, now known as Dominion, Smartmatic, Heart InterCivic. These four companies, they control nearly all of the voting machines that are used in the United States. And then if you want to trace their boards of directors and all of this sort of stuff, you find that it's really a small group of people who have a stranglehold over the very mechanisms of our voting system. And so if you believe that the, you know, the deck is stacked in favor of Hillary Clinton and it has been from the very beginning, that's absolutely true. I I believe that 100%. But that's only the tip of the iceberg, because even if it weren't, it could be done after the fact, once the vote are cast. That's part of the problem here. And that's why, well, me personally, I don't get too worked up about these, you know, this, this quadrennial farce that we have here, because I know that at the end of the day, the ruling class will get who they want. Well, I agree completely. And I, you know, I have to say that I, I am really tired of this uh, Trump is Hitler terrorism, you know, uh, that, that you, you just can't get away from it. I, I don't think, you know, I, I could be wrong, you know, anything can happen. Well, not anything, but <laughs> the, the powers that be could, could pull anyone, any one trick on us if they felt like it. But it seems to me that, you know, considering the interests that are lined up behind Hillary Clinton and the Pentagon and the CIA, and Wall Street and big pharma and big oil and the top brass of the military, uh, the neocons and the Republican establishment, including the Bushes, when you consider those interests lined up behind her, you have to admit that it's extremely unlikely that they're going to let Donald Trump because, become president. Of course. I think in large part because, you know, having an African-American president and, and a kind of, you know, slim, eloquent, seemingly liberal one at that, uh, in the Oval Office is a much more effective way to push the war and Wall Street agenda than it would be under a divisive and unpopular, polarizing, you know, Yahoo like George W. Bush, and certainly uh, a, a really offensive, uh, kind of angry-making uh, buffoon like uh, Donald Trump. I mean, if he were president, he couldn't do anything without rousing tremendous mass resistance. Yeah. On the other hand, if you have an African, our first African-American president could get away with murder, literally. So, so will our first female president, it seems to me. So I, I am extremely confident that, that, you know, even though it might become a nail biter, if you're not paying close attention, I, I find it very hard to believe that Hillary Clinton isn't going to win, you of know. Of course. And I and I also think that um, anyone who really cares about democracy as opposed to partisan advantage should be focused, uh, you know, have a kind of laser like focus on a genuine reform of the American voting system, because unless we do that and get all the you know dirty money out of the process and all the rest of it, uh, we have no right whatsoever even to pretend to be promoting democracy abroad at gunpoint, you know. Yeah. Uh, we've got to fix the system, and, and it's just disgraceful that, that liberals have, have been so uh, indifferent to this, to this problem. Let me add, because you brought it up, the ownership and management 
of, of all those companies that dominate the electronic voting business, every one of them, not just the big ones, but the small ones too from state to state, they're all owned by Republicans, and they are quite right-wing Republicans. Uh, Bob and Todd Urasevich, who started American Information Systems, which then split into ESNS and Diebold, or a couple of theocratic Christians, you know, that kind of uh, ultra-right-wing ideology motivates many of the players atop the infrastructure of our elections. And these are people who don't believe in democracy. These are people who believe in theocracy. These are people who see democratic processes as a threat to their agenda. Now, I think they have worked very comfortably all these years with, um, you know, the, the corporate sector, which is, you know, God knows secular. But, they, but the point is that, that the point I'm making is simply that if, if, if Democrats and liberals were really serious about this problem, you, you would think that they would that they would, you know, look into this crucial story of who owns the voting system in this country. And yet I, I can't think of a single journalist, uh, you know, uh, who who has done so. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're we're way over the time already, but I think this is important and I want to make this point. I want to push back a little bit. Uh, not that you were necessarily saying something that I disagree with, because of course I do agree that really the um, seemingly the entire infrastructure of the ruling class and the empire is uh, behind Hillary Clinton. But I believe firmly that the ruling class, those at the very topmost echelons of the empire, understand how to control uh, even those individuals and leaders who seemingly are uncontrollable. And I don't believe for a second that Donald Trump is some kind of a maverick that is unpredictable, that they don't know any way to control him. And I wrote a piece back in March in Counterpunch called... Uh, uh, President Trump, question mark, U.S. war machine rolls on, okay? And the fact of the matter is, if you look at the people who have surrounded Donald Trump, people like Walid Farez, who is an advisor to Romney, who is a arch-neocon involved with all of the same neocon bastards that the Bush administration was involved in, you look at somebody like uh, Steve uh, Munchen, or Munchen, or however he pronounces his name, who is the financial and economic advisor for Donald Trump. This is George Soros' business partner. This right, is a, right. this is somebody who is a hedge funder on Wall Street. This is somebody who is deeply embedded in the top uh, uh, circles of the ruling establishment of finance capital. So, the, and, and I could point to a number of others, including the Israel lobbyists who are in Trump's bed, including, oh, absolutely. including absolutely. the Bush administration hacks who are lined up behind Trump, including all of the generals and all of the other warmongering lunatics strange loves who are backing Trump as well. My point is that it is a setup. This is the Debordian spectacle, right? This is the society of the spectacle that we're witnessing here. The very notion that Trump is a threat to the empire is this sort of anti-imperialist, which I hear from some of these mush-headed morons trying to tell me that Donald Trump should be supported because he's a threat to the empire. This is insanity of the worst kind. And so, you know, I I think that that point needs to be made. Trump is not some outsider. Trump is fully controlled. He's just not the kind of candidate that they would prefer, but he is the kind of candidate they can control, and they are. Well, I agree completely. I read that piece of yours. I thought it was right on. I mean, I just want to say again, 
that you know my argument wasn't that Trump is some kind of an outsider. Oh, and I know you weren't. I know you weren't saying that, Mark. But a lot no, of people no, 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 do but say I, that. I think it is true that 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 his his um, his presidency would would simply rouse too much resistance. You know, he's he's he is too offensive and polarizing a figure. And I mean, I, I have no doubt they can control him. But I don't think they could actually, um, you know, prevent him from shooting his mouth off and saying things that would just have people in the streets. You know, I mean, people are trained uh, by this point, sort of habituated to do that. And I think it would be a, 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 a tactical uh, mistake on their part. But I, there is no doubt that he's, uh, you know, completely corrupt. I mean, it, I've asked myself, you know, why he's doing what he's doing, and have entertained the possibility. That that he is, in some way, knowingly helping uh, Hillary out because without his candidacy, she would be nowhere. You know, I mean, only by contrast with him to her so-called right, is she able to present herself as 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 a necessity because she's you know very unpopular all across the political spectrum. I mean, he's a, he is a gift to her. He is the gift that keeps on giving. And I've I've wondered, you know, if that's so what his motives might be, and it's possible, I mean, I'm just speculating here, that he may have some kind of serious legal problems hanging over his head. And, you know, it's in his interest to play ball, you know, because he is a very corrupt figure, far more corrupt in some ways than even the press has discussed. You know, I mean, much of the major national media is here in New York, which is a city run by the real estate cartel. And Trump's, um, you know, mafia involvement as a as a as a contra- as a builder and so on, that that doesn't get much attention. Uh, what what tends to get his attention are his his gaffes and his politically incorrect statements, his inflammatory remarks and so on, his tax returns. But that you know, when it comes to the kinds of wrongs that that many of the captains of the media are are involved with, or some of their friends are involved with, I think they kind of lay off him. There's no doubt about that, and I think that there's uh, a number of reasons for that. I think number one is that it would require serious journalism, and that's not what journalists today are interested in. Uh, right. Number number two, I think it would expose uh, something that is really at the heart of, um, well, I guess at the heart of the co- of the political uh, um, scenario that we're witnessing, and that is that there are different kinds of money, different kinds of power that need to be understood, and that those different kinds of power are really coming into conflict here. I I wrote a piece about this more than a year ago, like uh, summer of 2015, uh, about Trump when he was first coming out as like the as the front runner, and I noted there that the Koch brothers were lining up against him that the Koch brothers represent call it the legal underbelly, seedy underbelly of finance capital, and that Donald Trump represents merely a different flavor of corruption, mm. a different kind of uh, uh, corrupt vulture capitalist, one who's in bed with people like Roy Cohn, the famous right. you know lawyer right. to the mob, and uh, in bed with fat Tony Salerno in Philadelphia when he was building in Atlantic City, and we could point to a thousand other examples of Trump being deeply in bed with some of the most unsavory characters, but they don't want to mention that because to mention that opens up the floodgates to a whole host of very uncomfortable questions. 
That's absolutely true. It would it would it would uh, uh, threaten to move them closer to something like genuine muckraking, you know, which they don't do, right? They yeah, don't do exactly. That. They uh, what they do is just embarrassing, you know. I mean, the New York Times is extremely difficult for me to read every day, <laughs> you know. I mean, I get it. I get the paper version. I sit down and I read it, and and between the you know stories that are nothing but tissues of lies like anything about uh, you know Syria or, or Russia or Venezuela and the stories that are just laughably trivial and absurd uh, there's 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 just very little there it's 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 can, really can, something to see can I make one comment here before we go though I I, I want to just say something that I think is important because while we can sit and lambast the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, all the rest of these uh, traditional media outlets, we also need to be aware that they are very useful for our purposes too, that we need to be reading them, we need to be paying attention to them, because I alluded to a story earlier, the headline I have memorized because I've cited it so many times, CIA said to steer arms to Syrian rebels, New York Times, June 2012. That is important because then when we are accused of being conspiracy theorists or Assad apologists or what have you, you could say, whoa, 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 don't look at me. Look at the New York Times that confirmed everything I've been saying for the last five years. Look at the Washington Post con- or, uh, and Reuters confirming that the U.S. was operating a terrorist training camp in Adana, Turkey, over the border from Syria, using it as a launching point for terrorist proxies into Syria. We could point to these stories oh, because they yes. have come out of these outlets that while they may be discredited on the one hand, when they do good reporting, we need to use it against them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Of course. Of course, that's true. You know, in my propaganda class here at NYU, we, we the students uh, examined a piece that came out on Monday about the failure of the peace deal in Colombia. It was a front page piece. The piece was, was staggering because on the one hand, it, it actually suggested, I mean, strongly, that all the atrocities in that 52-year civil war have been committed by FARC, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Never, uh, never the U.S.-backed right-wing governments uh, of Colombia, no, right? Which, which in historical fact, actually committed between 70 and 80 percent of the atrocities. Yeah. They also, did, of course, did not mention the U.S. government, and of course, said nothing about drugs, right? Well, you know, one of the most useful correctives to that article, as the students themselves discovered, had had run in the Washington Post. You know, it was called Covert Action in Colombia, and it talked about, you know, the CIA's involvement, um, you know, uh, killing FARC leaders in that country. That was in the Post, you know, which is one of these papers that we ordinarily lambast, as you put it. But but they are uh, extremely useful, and, and there are very good journalists working there, you know. They are structurally bound to keep promoting these these insane lies and fantasies, but 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 they are nevertheless indispensable because you know from time to time they they uh, tell the truth or they tell part of the truth. So there's there is no getting away from them. We 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 depend on them, but it is depressing to see how they've. Uh, declined, you know, from a, a standard that wasn't all that high for many decades to start with, uh, to what they're doing now, uh, which, you know, for the unanimity and stridency of the propaganda, and and considering the really kind of catastrophic consequences of this drive toward war, it's 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 really alarming to see what's become of the press. 
No doubt about it. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, we could literally go on for hours on these subjects. Yeah, I'm having but, a great time here. <laughs> but uh, we are we are approaching. Well, we're approaching a record length for this show, so we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I do want to thank you so much for coming on the show again, listeners. You got to go to the website markcrispinmiller.com. You can follow uh, Mark's work, a, a lot of the stuff that he disseminates, including for every once in a while stuff from yours truly, which is always yep. appreciated um sure. he is the author of loser take all election fraud and the subversion of democracy as well as fooled again the real case for electoral reform and a number of other works you should definitely get your hands on those um also of course again counterpunch fund drive very important to give what you can uh look we all know that people are hurting financially i'm one of them uh you probably are as well out there listening but Find what you can. Dig through your dig through your pockets. Go into the couch. Whatever you got to do. I think that uh, buying uh, buying a cup of coffee at Starbucks, which is like five bucks, right? Give up on that for a week and give that money to Counterpunch. Help keep Counterpunch going. Mark Crispin Miller, thanks for coming on the show, listeners. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'll speak to you again next week. <laughs>